Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I'll be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, lots going on as usual, uh, especially today uh, here in Israel, we saw uh, pretty unprecedented scenes in the Knesset. We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, I'd like to talk about the region a little bit. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a flurry of activity around Sudan and the last few days, well, last few weeks, there's been a lot of negotiations between the US government and the Sudanese transition government about uh, taking Sudan off the uh, uh, prescribed terrorist, uh, supporters of terrorist list. Uh, basically, they're under a boycott, you're not to do dealings with them. Uh, and it seems like that that's been worked out that they will pay some sort of compensation to victims of terror. And in response, they will receive a lot of funding, a lot of aid, and uh, you know, Sudan will be taken out of uh, the list of prescribed nations. One of the aspects of this agreement uh, is that uh, Sudan will uh, at some point recognize uh, Israel, will have relations. There's been a lot of talk within Sudan, various uh, Islamic forums, uh, some coming out in favor of normalization, as it's called, uh, with Israel and others saying no. Uh, the ones that are closely tied to the government, it seems, are finding uh, ways to come out with fatwa, uh, Islamic uh, jurisprudence decisions that allow for uh, peaceful relations with Israel. So it seems that's the way things are going. And two uh, ministers in the Israeli government came out today and believes uh, that uh, it could be a matter of days and certainly before the American elections uh, that Sudan and Israel will uh, release a third uh, sort of normalization agreement, call it peace treaty, whatever you have. Um, there was even talk today, uh, there was a plane which, you know, today you can find all these apps where you can map and watch planes where they take off, where they land. Well, there was one mysterious uh, plane that uh, took off from Israel and went to Sudan. And that is obviously a rarity because there are no direct flights. As I said, we have no formal relations. So that could point to some behind the scenes negotiations, but it certainly seems that Sudan is uh, next in line. Uh, and it could certainly happen in days. It's something that the US is working towards. Um, ambassador Friedman, uh, US ambassador to Israel, poured a little bit of cold water. He believes that eventually more and more Arab and Islamic countries will come uh, and uh, have formal relations with Israel, but he certainly put no timetable on this and didn't seem to think that anything was imminent, but uh, it's very possible uh, that it seems like something is happening. Um, it's hard to see after Sudan where the next country would come. Uh, there's been some talk of Saudi Arabia, but I think Saudi Arabia is, to my mind at least, too big a fish at this point. Um, I think they're probably playing a wait and see game uh, to see how the American elections plays out. Um, but really, as opposed to, let's say, uh, the Emiratis, uh, and to, to a larger extent, and the Bahrain to a lesser extent, uh, the Saudis don't really gain too much from recognizing Israel and 
establishing relations. Israel has pretty good relations with the, with the Saudis. They, you know, uh, officials have shared a stage in recent uh, years. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence sharing. There's a lot of behind the scenes uh, discussions, negotiations, and certainly uh, Bahrain to a larger extent and the UAE to a lesser extent would not have made this move to establish relations with Israel if it wasn't uh, with a Saudi nod uh, and approval and green light. Um, and the fact that now we're able to fly planes coming to and from Israel and even Israeli planes over Saudi Arabian airspace, these are all signs that Saudi Arabia is certainly moving towards it, but it's inching towards it. I, I, I don't see Saudi Arabia uh, coming out to open relations. Um, I think if Trump, President Trump wins, uh, wins re-election, perhaps there'll be a bit more uh, emphasis there, but uh, I think they're playing a waiting uh, game and I don't think they really lack anything from the US at this point. They have very, very close relations with the US. Uh, that's under whether it's a uh, Republican or Democratic administration. So I don't really see uh, the Saudis rushing uh, to the table at this point. Again, a lot's going on behind the scenes, but uh, formal open relations, even especially warm relations that we have the UAE, Bahrain is slightly less. Um, I, I don't see at the moment talking about Bahrain. Uh, there was a delegation that went out this week to Bahrain to sign uh, this agreement. It certainly didn't go as far as the UAE agreement. People talk about this as slightly less than open and warm uh, relations when Israeli delegation went to UAE, made the front page of every single local newspaper. There was real interest, real, real groundswell of support. Uh, that certainly wasn't the same uh, with Bahrain. It didn't uh, make the front page of any newspaper. And they're, 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 they're treading a lot more carefully, let's say, than UAE. It's certainly not that warmth, that level of warmth. Uh, as we saw UAE delegation in Israel signing all sorts of agreements, communications, uh, transportation, science, et cetera, et cetera. And a real level of warmth uh, is developing between these two countries. And, you know, there, there's um, many, uh, uh, you know, uh, companies, uh, whether they're government or non-governmental companies that are trying to uh, get in on this, uh, you know, there's a lot of trade between the countries already. They're talking about tourism. Uh, Etihad Airways, I believe, just signed an agreement to fly to uh, Israel. I think Arkia, which is the secondary uh, Israeli national charter, well, it's not really a national charter, but Israeli uh, plane, is also signing up to fly direct uh, to the Emirates. So there's, it's, 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 that's, that's really the sort of, I'm sure that's the model that Israel wants uh, around the region. Uh, last night or yesterday, we saw a bit of a flurry of activity in the region. Um, we saw Israel, again, not taking responsibility, not uh, claiming it, but there was um, uh, an attack on a school or an empty school or a school that has been used by a group very close to Hezbollah, which is basically an Iran-backed uh, Iran organization very close to uh, the Israeli-controlled uh, Golan Heights. Um, and we heard at least of the three people that killed um, that they were of this uh, terrorist or known terrorist organizations affiliated with Hezbollah who had said that they would use that border area uh, with Israel to launch attacks from Syria. So uh, we can see obviously something was going to happen there. So Israel, again, without taking full responsibility, uh, seemed to... Uh, seemed to feel there was something going on there that they needed to send a message or 
maybe these particular people or this unit that was obviously based there were planning something. Uh, on the other hand, we had uh, something we hadn't seen in a while. We, uh, the Israeli army uncovered through its uh, uh, deep underground sensor system, uh, a Hamas, actually we don't know if it's Hamas, but a terrorist attack tunnel that actually had uh, come tens of meters into Israel. And certainly if it would have been utilized, could have uh, brought a lot of damage. A very sophisticated, very big tunnel, very long tunnel, obviously been dug for many months, if not years, uh, but Israel found it. And it's clear that uh, Hamas and other terrorist groups in the Gaza Strip are still trying to um, uh, look for opportunities uh, to try and attack Israel. Uh, Israel responded to this first of all by exploding, obviously, the tunnel, um, but also from attacking some Hamas uh, positions uh, in Gaza. And there was uh, some volleys of rockets uh, across the border, which were uh, taken out by Iron Dome, thankfully. So there was quite a lot uh, going on yesterday on at least two of Israel's uh, fronts, uh, on the military front, on the defensive front, let's say. Uh, moving back to uh, closer to home, uh, politically, again, you know, so much going on. Today was a real, real shock, uh, it's a shocking event. Um, I just saw something about a decision being made, but basically what happened was today, one thing that the opposition had tried uh, to do for a while, uh, as we know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is indicted in three cases, uh, case 1000, case 2000, case 4000. Well, case 3000 is uh, probably the most serious out of all of them, but at the moment does not implicate and probably won't implicate uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, but certainly implicates people very, very close to him, family members, close advisors, uh, uh, business partner, former business partners, uh, which basically there was um, some uh, graft and, and, and corruption in uh, uh, dealing with uh, buying some German submarines. There's this whole deal that... Um, Israel bought some submarines, also Egypt bought some submarines, and it's claimed, or there's an indictment that some uh, Israeli middlemen made uh, money out of this, especially against the defense ministry, which decided we don't need these submarines, and certainly we don't want to see uh, some of these deals being made. So that's a very, very serious case, and a lot of people uh, in the anti-Netanyahu uh, uh, camp have been trying to uh, label him with this, as I said, uh, this week it actually appeared, there was a leak, uh, someone very seen in the defense ministry who actually uh, attaches Netanyahu to it. So there was a big call to uh, officially uh, look uh, into the case and see if Netanyahu could be indicted on that. Uh, the attorney general Mandelbrit has advised, uh, said that there's not enough uh, evidence for Netanyahu to be tied to that investigation. But the <clears throat> opposition, the Knesset wanted to open up a parliamentary inquiry, which wouldn't have so much teeth but it would certainly be a good show. Uh, it would look into a lot of the details and it would certainly be a, a bit of a PR fail uh, for Netanyahu. Remarkably, for such a big uh, issue, for some reason, the coalition uh, weren't there for the vote uh, to establish this inquiry. And uh, the opposition scored a massive victory in managing to get 25 votes for establishing this inquiry against 23 against it. And just as the vote was uh, started, uh, the coalition chair, Mickey Zahr, we've talked a lot about him in the past, uh, suddenly approached the acting or the deputy uh, Knesset speaker, a member of the uh, joint Arab list, 
and said we want uh, a vote with names. There's, there's various uh, types of votes in the Knesset. There's just ones where you press a button. There's others where you go name by name and you have to say yes or no. And so uh, you can, the government can call for different types and they were basically caught unawares and they lost that vote. Uh, but then the government basically put pressure on the Knesset speaker, Yeruv Levine, from the Likud to basically annul and void that vote. And there's been massive discussion today. Was that legal? Because there was a subsequent vote and the cabinet meeting uh, with all the government ministers basically was supposed to talk about the coronavirus issue and all the big problems around that was broken up just so they could go and vote for a second time. When the opposition understood that they didn't have the numbers, they boycotted the vote. So it was something like 45, 46 uh, to zero. Um, but there's a lot of anger and, and disappointment about this. Some saying that this shows that there is no democracy. The Knesset is basically useless today because a vote took place. And then it was null and void five minutes later. Uh, a lot going on around that. I did see there was a decision made on that, but I can't see as I'm talking to you. Um, but regardless of what the Knesset legal advisor will say, uh, I'm sure this will be pushed and already is being pushed to the Supreme Court. So that's certainly one to watch out on. Um, the talk of this week has been about the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, Israel uh, uh, sort of uh, went out of full lockdown to a semi-lockdown on Sunday, um, where you were allowed to go beyond a kilo kilometer. Uh, kindergartens were open. Uh, small businesses that are not public-facing were open, and a few other things, except for red cities. Red cities were uh, supposed to be in full lockdown. And 90 to 95% of the red cities or red regions were ultra-Orthodox. And rather than remain locked down, there was a decision made even amongst the mainstream of the Orthodox, not the ones on the margins, to basically open up the schools. So tens of thousands of ultra-Orthodox kids in the highest infected areas, basically completely, or their parents rather, not the kids because they don't make the decision, the parents, the communities, the communal rabbis, the communal leaders basically decided uh, to fly in the face of the law and open up all the uh, schools, whereas all the other schools in all the other areas have remained closed. Uh, there was a big outcry that obviously this is a, a two-tier uh, process, and they called on Prime Minister Netanyahu to uh, basically try and fulfill the law. And there was, there was all these secret discussions that were exposed and understandings where basically it seems that there were, you know, sort of, the laws were not enforced in these areas. There was one or two fines given out, but the fact that there were hundreds of schools uh, opened up with tens of thousands of kids, basically they got what they wanted. Uh, Netanyahu does not want to cause a fight with his, we, we've spoken about this before, he doesn't want to cause a fight with his most loyal partners. So basically the ultra-Orthodox uh, appear to be able to do what they want. They want to open up the schools, they want to get back to uh, what they call as normal life as quickly as possible, but they don't want to do anything uh, about the coronavirus. If you go to these areas, you will not see uh, many of the, uh, you know, the expected measures, whether it's uh, wearing a face mask, whether it's keeping certain distance, they keep on showing weddings and events of hundreds, if not thousands of ultra-Orthodox gathering together without masks, without social distancing. And so basically these things are being ignored. Uh, interestingly, after, you know, as I said on Sunday, the decision was made to open up uh, most of the country except for the red areas and on Tuesday already suddenly the red areas no, uh, didn't uh, 
were no longer uh, red areas because the numbers had dropped in those areas. Well, if you look at the numbers, and a lot of people pointed this out, um, the numbers of infections dropped because quite simply people in these areas stopped going to get tested. So obviously if you don't get tested, there'll be no infections. So the government uh, opened up these areas uh, on Tuesday. So they were only locked down for two days. And even those two days, they didn't adhere to the regulations. And even now, there's supposed to be no schools. They put off the decision even on the first, second, perhaps third or fourth grade, uh, because they said they don't have enough time. This is in the whole country. Uh, they said they don't have enough time to uh, fulfill this decision, which is remarkable. Everyone knew there'd be a second wave, and we've been in the second wave already for a month, six, uh, six weeks. Now they're suddenly waking up to the, the fact that it will take them a month to implement. So there's a lot of disagreements uh, between even uh, ministers within the liquid, whether it's the health minister, who's against the finance minister, who's against the education minister. So there's a lot of scoreboards within. Um, the, uh, talking about the finance minister, well, the budget seems to be edging forward. Uh, there's a lot of backlash about the fact that uh, it's clear that the budget uh, for 2020, let alone 2021, is being used as a political weapon. Nikki Zar, we talked about earlier, uh, the coalition chairman basically admitted that the budget for the whole country is being held up purely for political reasons. Of course, uh, Yisrael Katz, the finance minister, and even the prime minister disavowed that, but everyone pretty much can see for the facts themselves that what Mickey Zar said is not exactly a big secret, but the fact that he said it openly, uh, he got a bit of a, a slap down from more senior people in his party. Uh, so those are things that's going on. There's a lot more. Uh, and if we had a lot more time, we could uh, talk about those, but I'm happy uh, to answer any questions you may have. All right, thank you so much. So the first one we have is going back to your first topic with Sudan. Uh, are there any significant economic benefits to Israel from having official relations with Sudan? Uh, probably not. Um, it's, Sudan is not uh, one of the leading economies in the world, to put it, uh, to put it lightly. In fact, it's one of the uh, weakest economies in the world. Uh, I think there'll be very little. Um, I don't know of any natural resources in Sudan. Uh, I think in the south there are, and that's what part of the civil war was related to over the years. I don't think it's more about that. I think it's more about legitimacy. It's more about keeping the momentum going uh, to make sure at least every so often there'll be another Muslim or Arab country that will you know, uh, uh, create uh, relations, normalize relations with Israel. Um, so I think it's more about that, trying to create this sort of momentum to see what the next country will be and to always make sure that there's gonna be something on the horizon that, that's being worked on. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be a win for all. It's a win for the US to show another country uh, coming back into the family of nations that uh, you know, the Trump administration can, can make this deal, can bring Sudan in from being isolated, being one of the you know, uh, terrorist supporting nations. I think it's a win for Sudan because they get taken off the sanctions list and there's a lot of money that's gonna come with that. And for Israel, as I said, it's the, it's the diplomatic momentum of having another Arab Muslim country uh, recognizing Israel, establishing relations with Israel, and I think that's a great, you know, that, that's a great coup for Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and Israel in general. Understood. So, what are the chances for diplomatic relations with Oman and Morocco in the near future? Well, they're, they're, definitely those are two which you would say um, are probably in the more likely uh, category, as perhaps 
you know, coming in the you know, next in line. Again, I don't necessarily see it happening tomorrow or next week. Um, and I think a lot is going to depend on what happens in the US elections. There's a lot of momentum because the Trump administration is putting a lot in this. Um, so I think maybe some of these nations will sort of wait and see um, to see what happens to see if Trump gets reelected, if there's a President Biden, because that obviously changes everything in the region. Um, so there's, there's definitely, you know, closer relations. Oman, Prime Minister Netanyahu visited there a number of months ago. Morocco, uh, we had, I think, at least one or two ministers uh, visit there. And there's certainly been talk of establishing relations. Um, so I, I think they're, they're definitely in the top category of uh, possibly being the next ones uh, to establish some sort of uh, relations with Israel. But I think the next in line is certainly going to be Sudan. Thank you. So when Israel launches retaliatory strikes against Gaza um, for the rocket attacks, do they need, do they do any real damage to Hamas assets or are they token strikes to appease the impacted communities? Um, probably the latter. Uh, basically, no, uh, they tend to uh, attack relatively minor assets, empty buildings, uh, maybe some sort of weapons depot, something like that. They, they certainly don't deliver any strategic blow. And probably the reason is for that is because there are intense negotiations uh, between Israel and Hamas to come to some sort of truce for six months. Uh, we've certainly seen a lessening of the balloon attacks, even the rocket attacks, trying to cross the border and attack uh, Israeli communities. We've seen very, very few of those uh, recently. And I think the, the reason is, is because both sides, there's an interest there. Uh, to try and lower tensions and to, to, to try and get the six-month truce. Uh, Netanyahu certainly doesn't want uh, a front uh, with, uh, with Hamas. And, and we saw today uh, Qatar uh, basically promised to continue their monthly payments to Gaza, what some on the Israeli opposition call protection payments. Um, and they're going to carry on at least through throughout 2021. So there's an interest in, uh, for Hamas to continue those payments. Uh, and for Israel, they certainly, you know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has shown a, a lack of interest in, in, in sort of a, a dealing any strategic blow to Hamas. The idea of just putting it on, uh, you know, on, on the low burner, putting it off the table for the moment is certainly in, in his political interest, let's say. Um, so I think that's where we are at the moment. I think uh, the, the attacks were just to show, you know, Benny Gantz, when he came into the defense ministry, he said that any attack there will be a retaliation. So he's, he's keeping to his word, but they were relatively minor uh, retaliatory uh, attacks. Um, and I think uh, it seems that from, from what we're hearing that we are getting uh, to the end of the discussions on uh, some sort of truth. So that's probably what lies behind uh, both, sides, uh, both sides of the equation, uh, the attack across the border in the last uh, 24 hours. Got it. Is there a religious rationale for the ultra-Orthodox community is not following the legal requirements relating to the virus? I personally believe it's a more social one. Uh, it's about maintaining their way of life for them, learning Torah day and night, uh, praying in, in a, a, a religious quorum in a minyan is paramount for them, even though the, the uh, Jewish law actually says uh, saving your life is more important than pretty much all of the uh, the other laws. 
um, but it's a way of life. It's become less about religion, I would say. This is, again, this is my personal critique. Uh, I'm sure we could get someone from that community who could give a better version of that. But uh, my particular critique is that uh, the way of life, maintaining the way of life, uh, way of life the control, uh, making sure that there are strict borders between that world and all other has become uh, the most important, uh, the uppermost goal of the community, or at least let's say the communal leadership. Uh, the interesting thing is that there are three uh, parts of the ultra-Orthodox community and each one is acting a little bit different. There's the Hasidic uh, part, uh, which again, depending which Hasidic dynasty, uh, some there's, there's different extremes. Some are completely not adhering to any laws. And the, the head rabbi has said, don't wear a mask, carry on praying together, carry on having events. There are other Hasidic dynasties, which are basically saying, you should not gather together, you should wear a mask all the time. So there's a bit of extreme there. Then you have the uh, Lithuanian, the non-Hasidic uh, group, which there's a bit of a mixed bag on that. They, they're not going all the way to ignore everything, but they're trying to push the boundaries as much as possible. Their leading rabbi came out this week and said the school should open, and that's why they decided to open. And then you have the Sephardic, the North African, the Middle Eastern, ultra-Orthodox, who are a lot more likely to go to the army, a lot more likely to work, a lot more likely to mix with non-ultra-Orthodox people. And interestingly, in that community, perhaps because of their, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, intertwinement with the general community, they have not been opening their schools and they have been keeping the regulations almost completely. So, you know, maybe sometimes simplistically, we talk about the ultra-Orthodox community as one monolithic body, but there's a lot going in there. But um, on the whole, in the last week, uh, we did see this mass communal civil some would call it civil disobedience, breaking the law, whatever you want to call it, by basically just deciding we're going to open our schools anyway, regardless of the fact that it's illegal under the current uh, Israeli regulations. So follow up on that, how does the general Israeli population feel about the ultra-Orthodox not adhering to the regulations? Has there been any sort of upheaval? Well, there's been a simmering uh, discontent with that. There's, there's a feeling that there are two, there's a, some have called it a state within a state, two, uh, uh, you know, two systems for one population or two systems for two populations. Some have even sort of quipped that this is two states for two people. Um, but there's been a lot of anger because people can't go to work. People are suffering. Unemployment is an all time high. Businesses are closing by the day. People, you know, children are at home, they can't go to school. And then we see a community completely uh, being disobedient, not listening to any of this. And, that, and we see a correlation between that and the extremely high infection rates. And don't forget when they do the national infection rates, they don't split them up into communities. So when the numbers go up, the restrictions also go up. So as long as there's a, a certain amount of the community, they're about 11% of the country, but they're 50% of infections. So then as long as they continue acting the way they do and infections continue to rise, we're going to be in a third lockdown or even we're not going to get out of the second lockdown. So there's been a lot of anger. There's been a lot of questioning why Netanyahu uh, should be allowing such a thing to take place. And every day on the news, there's pictures of weddings taking place with thousands of people, events you know, uh, taking place, hundreds of people dancing together, you know, arm in arm. You know, it's as if coronavirus doesn't exist. Um, so yes, there, there is a big uh, backlash and certainly the community hasn't done itself any favors 
uh, in feeling as part of wider community and doing outreach and saying, you know, we have to, we're in this together. They see themselves, it's, it, it appears that this is what the rest of the country are, are feeling, that they are deciding that the whole the rest of the country is irrelevant to them. Only what goes on in their community is important. Doesn't matter if people can't go out to work, school, uh, run a business, as long as they're able to maintain uh, their lifestyle, that's all that matters at this point to them. And obviously that creates a, a bit of a distaste in the mouth for, uh, from a lot of other Israelis. Of course, I'm sure. Um, so going back to a question that we've asked pretty much every single week, <laughs> but the question, the answer is always different. What odds would you give that the current government coalition will last and what would be the possible <laughs> makeup of a future coalition if this one fails? Um, we saw we saw another poll which shows, you know, Bennett edging closer to Netanyahu. Netanyahu was asked, uh, interestingly, you know, he, in the Knesset, there's there's always a stakeout by media right outside his Knesset office that he's walking in and out, whether to vote or whatever it is. And usually people are shouting questions at him. And as a consumer politician, he usually ignores most of them. But we saw this this week, he, uh, he was asked about the polls and he made a very telling comment. He says, I never do well in polls. I, I do well in elections with a very smug grin on his face. Uh, first of all, that's to a large extent, that's true. Um, but it seems like, you know, one of his exit points, we talk a lot, we've talked a lot about exit points that uh, are on the calendar, on the map, uh, where he can leave, where, where the government can be dissolved without him having to hand over the keys to the prime minister's office, to, to alternate prime minister, Benny Gantz. And one of them will be on uh, December 23rd when the budget has to be passed. If it is not automatically the government dissolved, um, but it's now most commentators believe that Netanyahu won't take that uh, particular point, probably because of the polls, probably because he understands we're not going to be completely out of the woods as far as coronavirus and certainly not in the economy. So that leaves a possibility of March because that will be three months. The budget, the next budget will have to be three months into the year. Uh, and he wants to retain that exit point. And that's where uh, Gantz comes in. And Gantz has said, if I do not see serious work on the 2021 budget by the end of November, uh, we're going to take steps, whether that, you know, th there's, there are some threats that he has. One of the threats was this investigation into the submarine affair, case uh, 3000, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Another one is that in theory, at least, and this is, remains in theory at this point, there is a majority in the Knesset that could uh, pass a law that could uh, ensure that a prime minister is not allowed to uh, sit in office uh, under indictment at the moment. It's only ministers, and there was a big legal discussion about it. But uh, I think there's 62, 63, uh, if Blue and White decided to cross the aisle uh, with the opposition. Um, so that remains a threat. That would certainly be a big worry for Netanyahu, because that would basically mean that he could not sit in the prime minister's office until after his case, if he was acquitted, that is. Um, but it's, 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 it's largely empty uh, because you would need quite a, a wide variety of coalition partners to vote for that. You'd need Yumina, you'd need Blue and White, you would need the Arab List, you'd need Israel Betainu, all to vote for it. And you've got to rely on the fact that do they care more about deposing Netanyahu than they do about working together? So there's a few things going on there. Um, but it seems like we're not going to go to elections in December. But my feeling is that they will still remain this exit point in March. And depending on, the, I mean, that will be the last exit point until Gantz uh, 
becomes prime minister in November. So I think that's highly unlikely. I've said that since the beginning. So my prediction is March, but one never knows if something happens in the next few weeks. He's got until December, um, but I think they'll work that out. Um, and I think March is probably um, the most likely and possibly the only remaining uh, time to call elections before Gantz takes over the prime minister's office. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to thank update you. us this week. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Nick Lariga, discussing Congress counters Turkey. Thank you all for again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.